You've probably heard the saying, data is the new oil. This is a commonly uttered phrase that alludes to the current and future value of data, but also to its ubiquity. Due to improvements in technology, we can collect, store, and analyze massive amounts of data better than ever before. With these new superpowers, we can get a better understanding of the current state of things, like how the Johns Hopkins dashboard accurately tracks current cases of COVID-19 worldwide. We can make predictions about what might happen next, like how many organizations try to predict who will stay and who will leave, and make more informed, data-driven decisions. However, this data won't analyze itself, and even if you're not the one behind the scenes pulling the levers, it's still important to be an informed end-user of data. That's why we're doing a three-part mini-series on data literacy. The ability to read, write, and communicate about data in context is now more important than ever, as uninformed misinterpretations of data can be more dangerous than not using data at all. I'm Nicholas Bremner. I'm Jose Espinoza. And you're listening to Mind Your Work, a podcast about social science and work and what happens when you put these things together. Today, we're going to be talking about data literacy. It's only natural to start off our, our mini-series here with a, a quick definition. We based our, our series in, off a definition from Gartner, which defines data literacy as the ability to read, write, and communicate data in context, including an understanding of data sources and constructs, analytical methods and techniques applied, and the ability to describe the use case, application, and resulting value. This is a big definition, and we realized as we were putting our episode together that it would actually make sense to break it into a series of three episodes. The first piece is understanding data sources and measurement. The second piece is understanding how to actually analyze that data. And the third is about how to visualize and communicate it within context so your audience can understand. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons we wanted to do this topic now is despite the fact that it's such a, a big encompassing umbrella of everything that's going on in the world right now, I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking exactly how we should view data and how we should treat it and, and why is it important for all of us, even those who are not conducting these analyses, who are just kind of on the receiving end of things, for us to understand exactly what is happening. So Nick, why do you think data literacy is important? It's a good question. I, I think that data literacy is currently very important and is going to become increasingly important because we are collecting and dealing with more data than ever before. More and more news articles come out saying things like, scientists say, or using data visualizations in the core narrative of the article. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to be able to understand this data and digest it, even if you don't work with data um, during your day job, just as a consumer of information, a lot of journalism is becoming more data driven. And so it's important to be able to, to digest this and be informed so you can make your own decisions and, and others aren't telling you what to think. Yeah, I think data or the notion of uh, invoking data or invoking analysis is a really powerful tool that it's, it's really currently kind of rising in popularity in terms of, like you said, of, of providing an, a convincing argument. Um, particularly, I think in the context of work, as we're always interested in this podcast, we have discussed previously, you know, things like engagement surveys and general collection of data for things like recruitment and hiring and those kinds of uses at organizations. And I think that's becoming more common and something that we've spoken about offline that I think is particularly important is that 
we're collecting data without knowing we're doing it. The way that systems work now, because everything is digital, you just have all of this extra data now. Organizations just happen to track more things, whether they're meaning to use them in the future or not. So there is a lot of potential, I think, a lot of potential to be unlocked there if you kind of really understand what you're looking at and can use it appropriately. Totally. There definitely is. And in the, in the first part of the series here, we're really going to focus on the first step of the whole data literacy process, which is getting an understanding of the sources of data, how the data are collected, and getting an understanding of, of how accurately things are measured. This is the, I would say, the more hidden aspect of data literacy. And I, I think it's kind of one of the most underrated aspects as well, because you don't necessarily see how the data are collected. That's kind of the, the part that's implied. It's, it's implied and, and explained in the methodology. You know, scientists talk about how they actually collected the data, but, you know, that's often omitted from visualizations and from the stories that are told about data. But it is equally, if not more important than, than other aspects of the data collection and, and processing process. So when it comes to kind of working with data, a good way to think about it is to introduce a, a pretty simple framework. We're talking about inputs, which is the data that Nick is talking about, how we collected this data and exactly what is it like, what do we do with it, which you think about in terms of the processes we engage with it in to analyze data and to understand and, and get our results. And then the output, you know, how do we present that? What are our storytelling? What is the, the what is really important for our, our listeners and our audience to, to see and hear? And one thing that I think, like you said, Nick, that we really forget is the importance of those inputs. And I say this uh -huh. to my students in my classes all the time. Data is important because it's garbage in and garbage out. If you don't collect data well, if you don't know what you have, if you don't really understand what it is that you're measuring, it doesn't really matter what you do with it after that. You set off on the wrong path, right? So even if you think you might have arrived at the correct destination, you can't tell because you ultimately started off at the wrong place. Yeah, and that's such an important part of the process because even though we have, and, and psychology does this a lot, we have very fancy statistical corrections that we can apply to account for measurement error and, you know, potentially not collecting data properly from the right people. But those statistical corrections are not as powerful or as effective as collecting data the right way in the first place. There is no substitute for that. And so even though like using the, the inputs processes output model that Jose spoke about, the inputs in the processes um, are the less visible parts of the framework. We just mm -hmm. typically see the output. We see the pretty graph or we see um, the story that you know a journalist is, has, is telling us about data, but those inputs strongly um, and completely influence those outputs. So they're critical to understand. So like we said before, we're going to focus kind of on the inputs part of our little process here. Start with, with data. And before you collect your data, the one thing that I think most people in IO psychology, and I think really most, most data-driven professions will say is, well, what instruments are you using? You want to start there first. You want to think about exactly what are the kinds of techniques we're going to use to collect our data? What are the kinds of questions we're going to ask with our instruments? And, and can they actually assess those things? In organizations, there are a variety of different measurement instruments that analysts or, or HR professionals can use. One of the most common ones that you're obviously going to be familiar with is, is surveys, asking people to report their attitudes, motivations, or, or feelings about something. Another, another form is actually 
observing the behavior of an individual, things like time motion studies to actually see how quickly someone could perform an action or observing them just doing their job. Another one is we can look at changes in, in the system of record, like in an HR information system or HRIS, where you can actually look at changes in, in headcount over time by people resigning or people joining. Um, you can look at changes in hierarchy, people moving around from manager to manager. And then we have one of the more, I would say, modern sources of data, which we term digital exhaust, uh, which we've alluded to in some of our other episodes, which is basically behavioral data that is is left over just in the wake of people interacting with uh, with computers, with technology. So an example of digital exhaust would be uh, looking at network patterns of who is emailing who. Um, you can see the connections in an organization. Or you can actually look at, if you equip employees with digital badges, you can look at where they're spending their time in the building and, and who they're interacting with as well. Um, these are new innovations that are unlocking different sources of data. So there's a variety of different instruments we have at our disposal. And these instruments each have their pros and cons. They're, they're, some, some instruments are good at measuring certain things. Surveys are, are great at assessing individuals' attitudes and kind of internal motivations for things, whereas they're not so good at estimating someone's behavior, especially like future behavior or even self-reported behavior because recall can be quite fallible. So there are oftentimes errors in measurement there. Whereas if we actually observe someone's behavior, we get a much more accurate indication of what they're doing. We won't spend too much time on each of these different methods because as you can imagine, they're quite complicated in and of themselves, right? There's lots of little levers you can pull depending on which one you're using to make them fit the kind of question you're asking a bit better or not. But we do want to spend a little bit of time just talking about general pros and cons of each of these. So surveys, like Nick just said, are probably the most common, I would say, Nick. Do you think that's still the case? I think it depends on what your your job is. But I would say that if, like as an IO psychologist, I would say surveys and, and interviews are probably really, really common ways of, of collecting data. And I mean, as, as psychologists, we want to know what people are thinking, how they, how they, how they feel about things. So surveys, interviews are, are great ways of, of capturing that information. Yeah. And that is a major strength, I think, of the survey or the kind of the direct perception assessment, right? You're asking a person when that could be internal people. So that could be asking your organization, people in your organization, how the latest organizational initiative is going, or that could be in terms of external, right? Things like customer satisfaction ratings also fall under this kind of instrument that we're, that we're talking about here. But like Nick said, there are quite a few built-in biases in terms of surveys, right? You're asking people to make judgments about themselves uh, or in terms of something that they're experiencing, something that they're perceiving. And of course, people are fallible, right? They're not objective sources of information. But there are lots of other little things about how you design your survey that could affect whether people are even paying attention. So something that I think we should always bring up when we talk about surveys is something called test taker fatigue. Essentially, if you are either putting together really, really long surveys where people at work especially have other things going on, they might not be paying that much attention when they answer the items that you have in your survey. Or maybe you're running into a problem that I think is slightly becoming maybe more common than it should. Organizations tend to do too many surveys. They tend to kind of try and assess almost everything consistently. And you're just flooding your employees, especially with all of these opportunities to say what they mean or, or give feedback, but really you're diluting the power of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. In my own work, survey fatigue is a very, very commonly used term. It's a, it's a major concern of business leaders because they recognize that we don't want to be over-surveying our employees. To that point, I think the, the bigger issue is more of 
um, a sense of futility that employees get from completing so many surveys because mm-hmm. they, they fill the survey, but they don't necessarily see why they're doing it. So that sense of, of fatigue is, is more, I think, a sense of cynicism. They don't think that any action is going to take place as a result of the survey. So you can actually overcome that and, and give yourself a license to survey a little bit more and maybe have a little bit longer surveys if you really make sure that um, employees understand what actions you took from that survey and, and, and help them understand how their individual responses actually contribute to, to making things different. So there are certain things you can do to kind of overcome some of these biases. But in general, you, you should really avoid long surveys and surveys that don't have clear questions and, or, or a clear objective. And of course, if you have the opportunity to do so, you might want to collect additional data in other ways, right? With other, some of these other instruments we're going to discuss to kind of back up what you're trying to answer. But if not, you can always do things like follow-up interviews to try and get a little bit more context, maybe in the general patterns that you're seeing from the trends in the survey data. Yeah, and that, that speaks to another kind of pro and associated con with surveys is that surveys are really good at getting information and attitudes from a whole bunch of people at scale, but oftentimes surveys won't actually point you in the direction of the, the solution itself. It might just give you a better sense of what, what the issue is. So oftentimes it is necessary to follow up with an interview or, or get a bit more in-depth information from, from employees. So I think maybe if we want to talk about this next instrument, we can talk about behavioral observation. And this one is exactly what it sounds like. You're going to basically take the resources you need to either hire a consultant or do it yourself or have some other kind of analyst come in and actually watch people do their jobs. Exactly how you do this has quite a a bit of variation, uh, but a common example that I actually have experienced are, are time studies in manufacturing. Nick mentioned this before, it's pretty common to come in and analyze how work is being done on, on the manufacturing line and see if there are places where you might save time or even if you're looking at it from kind of an occupational health and safety perspective, you might be looking at, well, it seems like we have this, this particular pattern of, of putting together this piece of work is maybe not so helpful for people who are making too many turns right towards their left and that could ultimately end up in injury. So maybe we can find a way to fix that before something bad happens. Yeah, I think where behavioral observation is, is really common is when people do job analyses, right? Do you actually want to analyze what people do on a daily basis for a particular job? And there are different instruments you can apply for a job analysis. Like you can, you can give a survey. You can ask people, you know, what are the things that you do on a daily basis? What are the most important things? That's a, that's a really common tool. But in the case of certain occupations where you have a degree of tacit knowledge, where people are, are proficient at something, but they may not be able to explain exactly what they're doing or, or how they do it. It is easier to observe someone doing that and, and document it. So behavioral observation is advantageous when individuals can't necessarily articulate the information that you're trying to gather. Now, that also comes with some quite severe limitations. Behavioral observation can be really, really, really difficult, particularly if the job is the kind of job where maybe it's not quite obvious what that person is doing in terms of really discrete tasks or actions or responsibilities. Management, I think, is one good example where it can be really hard to determine just by observing what's happening, exactly what the manager is doing that is specific to that role. One of the other limitations of behavioral observation is that they're just generally very time-consuming and expensive to perform. You've got to hire an expert typically to do this who's proficient in you know, time motion studies or job analysis, and they just spend time observing the, the employees. And so um, it makes it difficult to observe multiple people at once. And yeah, they're just, they're just generally quite expensive. Another thing that happens is people change their behavior when they're being observed. 
So if you bring in an analyst, and they used to happen all the time on, on the manufacturing line I worked on, whenever they were there doing time studies, everyone worked very differently than when the time studies person wasn't there. People change their behavior in terms of whether they're actually performing more than they usually do or, or behaving in ways that kind of inflate the responsibilities that they have because it might be beneficial to them. So you, you definitely want to think about what are the things that might happen if people know that they're being observed on the job. The last example we'll give here is, is also related to behavioral observation, but it's, it's a more modern form of that, which is digital exhaust. And, and this is essentially looking at the data left over from how an individual is behaving or interacting in a digital environment. So whether that's based on their email use, who they're sending emails to, how much time they're spending working in Google Docs, for example, so the, the Google suite can actually measure and document how much time you're spending doing what. And as you can imagine, this this gives us a massive amount of information and we can actually analyze this data at scale to get a proxy or a general sense of how people are behaving online. Another example that I think we alluded to in, in a previous episode is the use of badges that actually collect, I think it's through, um, I'm not sure if it's through GPS data or if it's, it's through some other mechanism, but you can actually track human movements and how they kind of interact with each other and, and, and move through space. And so this results in massive streams of data. The obvious disadvantage here is that it's, it's harder to analyze, not an issue if you're proficient in that. And the previous limitation was uh, technology-based in the sense that it creates massive amounts of data. That is less of a limitation these days with, with improvements in you know, data storage and, and data analysis procedures. Another huge con uh, to digital exhaust that we should probably keep in mind is that it sounds nice that it's very objective. You are getting actually accurate measurements of whatever it is that you're looking at. But something to remember is that this kind of data, much like all objective measures, is devoid of context. So you have to have a really strong understanding exactly of what it is that your data is measuring and making sure that you interpret it in a way that makes sense for the question that you're asking. What I mean by that is that objective data can actually hide a lot of what's happening under the surface, exactly what it is that is motivating the behaviors, or might be the result of little things like technical glitches or unexpected uses that lead to these observations. So if all you're tracking is how long I spend on a particular part of my Google Docs, well, perhaps you're not paying enough attention to that. Maybe I just left that window open, or perhaps I spent a lot more time editing than I did actually drafting. Does that make a difference? Those sorts of things. It, it takes a real nuanced understanding of what it is that you're looking at to get to the answer. That's a really good point. And I think to cap this discussion off, it would be worth mentioning that if you want to get a really good sense of what's going on, the best thing to do in many cases is to combine multiple data sources into one analysis. So for instance, if you're looking at employee productivity and you're, you're concerned that your employees might be working too much and burning out, you can look at you know, how much time people spend emailing or how much time people spend messaging each other on, on, on Slack or, or other applications like that. But to Jose's point, there's a lot of error there and you're making assumptions. It's kind of, it's, it's context-free data collection. So you can actually combine that with self-report behavior to measure people's experience of exhaustion or cynicism, like symptoms of burnout, and put that together to see if people's digital behavior is actually corresponding with your measure of burnout.
Okay, so let's say you've chosen a measurement instrument that you're happy with and that fits the kind of information that you want to gather. So let's say you you want to measure how satisfied employees are feeling about their job. A great way to measure that is with a survey. It's a pretty standard example. Another consideration you have to think about, though, is who are you going to send the survey to and how often are you going to send it? This is a, a really important implication for you know any data collection instrument you use. If a survey is not sent to the appropriate sample or, or subsection of employees, the data you could be getting back might not provide an accurate estimation of how people in the organization are feeling overall. Another thing is that if you only send a survey out or you only do, you know, let's say interviews once, um, attitudes could change as well due to external events, due to just how people are in individual differences that change over time as well. So frequency of measurement is another really, really important thing. This especially comes into play if you really want to understand if something is affecting something else. You've all heard the, the term uh, correlation does not equal causation. To really get a, a sense of, of causality, absent doing an experiment, collecting data longitudinally can give you a better sense of if you know event A caused event B. So we have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah, and, and it's hard to really underplay how important this is, particularly in terms of sampling, which is what we refer to when we talk about exactly who you're getting your data from. A concept that is related to this is the reality that statisticians have spent a lot of time thinking about this and crunching the numbers. And in order to get really stable results, results that will generalize, that will apply to maybe everybody in the organization or even broader than that to everybody in an industry, you basically need to make sure you have a group of people who you're collecting data from that is large enough in terms of the number as well as a, a group who is representative to some extent of the kind of people that you hope to generalize your results to. So if I'm interested, in, like like Nicholas said, in understanding my employee's job satisfaction, am I interested in that in terms of a single department? Am I interested in maybe at a single job level? Maybe I'm really concerned with how our software engineers are feeling. They've been working a lot. They've been working a lot of overtime. And I'm interested in this particular group. So I want to make sure, do I have enough engineers in my sample to actually generalize to the rest of the engineers in my organization? Or am I accidentally, by mistake, maybe only measuring this with a particular subset who maybe are not representative of the entire group? So an example of that uses sampling that I think most people will, will find pretty relatable, um, and, and it's fairly topical given that uh, at the time of recording, we just wrapped up the, the election in the United States, um, is political polling. And so when you want to get a sense of, of the way people will vote, um, what their political beliefs are, you can't ask everyone in, an, in, in the entire country, but you can ask a subset of the population. And based on historical voting patterns, people typically know which groups are tend to vote a certain way. So pollsters try and get a representative sample of individuals within certain demographic groups. Like a, a common example is non-college educated white males who historically tend to vote Republican. What's interesting is that this time around, polls are actually quite off. They, they overestimated the amount of Democratic support that Democrats thought they would get. And I was listening to a, a webinar um, put together by The Economist recently, and they were, they were interviewing one of the, the, the polls analysts, and they, they found that the polls this time around suffered from something called differential partisan non-response bias. And basically that means is that individuals who traditionally vote Republican tended not to answer the phones. And this is a problem because when you have people not answering your survey or not answering the phone, you actually get an inaccurate representation 
of the state of the country or or the state of your organization. So so bringing that a little bit closer to home with an organizational example, if you want to get a sense of how committed employees are, there's actually evidence to suggest that employees who are less committed to the organization are kind of more withdrawn and, and also less likely to fill out a survey. So you might actually end up overestimating how committed employees are overall. So this is an important consideration to, to think about when collecting data. And sort of tied along that is the concept of statistical power. Now, we're not going to dive into all of the statistics behind this, but there is plenty of resources online for you to look up if you want to understand that. And basically, the idea here is for you to actually have really stable results that you can interpret with confidence, you need to make sure you have basically a sample large enough of the groups that you're trying to assess. So one way to think about this is if you want to make sure that you're representing the entire country in terms of their political beliefs, you basically need to calculate, and there are ways to do this, how many people of a sample of a smaller group you would need in order to make sure that you could generalize your results, if you could extend your conclusions to that broader group. Again, it's a little bit more complicated than we can get into in this episode, but it's something that if you're interested in doing data analysis yourself and data collection, you should make sure you look into understanding power. The last thing that we want to address in part one of this series is the notion of accuracy. And technically, everything we've been discussing here has been kind of building up to this. And it's really about making sure that we don't measure the wrong thing. And so if you've taken a a statistics class, you've probably uh, learned a little bit about the the concepts of, of validity and reliability. Validity is essentially accuracy itself. It's, it's, you know, how accurately are we, are we measuring this? You know, if, if we ask a person, you know, how, how burnt out are you on a scale from, from one to six and they answer a four, how similar is that to their actual, you know, conceptual level of burnout in reality? Reliability is, is basically the, the consistency of a measure. So if you, if you stood on the scale and it said 180 pounds, but then you stood on the scale again two minutes later and it's at 195, that's a, an example of a very unreliable scale. And something cannot be unreliable and valid because it's not giving you the accurate measurement consistently, but something can be consistently unreliable um, and inaccurate as a result. So, I mean, let's say I weighed 180 pounds, but I stepped on a scale and it consistently said 195. Well, it's reliable, but it's, it's off by about 15 pounds. So it's not necessarily valid. These are important considerations to, to think about when you know, designing a measure or, or choosing your measure, because if you want to get a sense of the, the accuracy of, of a survey, sometimes you need to ask multiple questions about a, a concept to actually get a good sense of how someone is feeling about something. You know, the, the concept of job satisfaction usually can't be accurately estimated in, in one question because there are a lot of different facets of, of someone's um, experience with their job. They may like certain parts of it, but they may not like certain parts of it. And so by simply asking, hey, are you satisfied? You're, you're missing out on a lot there. I think this is one of the perhaps the most applicable pieces of advice we can give. If you happen to be in the position where you're going to be working with consultants or organizations that are actually going to be running your engagement surveys, you're not doing this internally, or even if you are doing internally, a good thing to always ask about is if do we have any evidence of the reliability of our measures and their corresponding validity? So getting a sense, like Nick said, at least that the measure seems to be consistent and going through the process of judging, well, actually, does it actually reflect what we care about? This is a very complicated process, understanding whether a measure is valid or not. And ultimately, it's an ongoing process where a measure can be improved over time. 
it nonetheless is something that we tend to kind of skip. Like Nick said, if we're in a hurry or we feel like we have a really tight timeline in terms of how much time we can actually get from our employees to answer surveys, we might go with one or two items to assess a single idea or a single concept. When in reality, it's probably not going to be good enough for us to uh, assess what's actually happening here. When that occurs, we ultimately end up with the problem we talked about at the beginning. You kind of get garbage data and doesn't matter what you do with it after that. It's probably not going to give you accurate results. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. And I think one other thing that's important to say, and I think this is a really common misconception of, of the concept of, of validity or accuracy as well, is that a measure is not inherently valid. Like validity is not uh, an inherent property of, of, a, of a survey question um, mm-hmm. or of a certain measure. Validity is more, I would say, circumstantial. So it's, it's, it's more of a question of, of saying this measure is valid for X. It's not this measure is inherently valid. So for instance, I would say that a, uh, a scale is a valid measure of estimating my weight but it's not a valid measure of, of estimating how I feel that day of my emotional state. This is the same thing for, for um, pre-employment selection testing. You could say that a, a measure has been validated to accurately predict who will be great at sales, but that measure may not be an accurate predictor of who would be great at running a business. These, these are different things. And so validity is not an inherent property of, of the measure, but it's more a property of, of what it's used for. Don't ask, is it valid? Ask, is it valid for this? So generally, I think what we've been trying to get at is ultimately the workplace and really any area that you're interested in studying empirically with data is really complex. We're talking about complicated phenomena, multifaceted things. Lots of things are happening at once. And when you try to assess and ultimately analyze your data, you're trying to engage with something that is difficult to capture in a few survey items or even with an interview or looking at something like digital exhaust. So what we really want to consider is sit down, look at what we're trying to do with our measurement, what we're trying to do with the data collection we're conducting, and see where there are limitations, where are deficiencies. So one common example of this is when you think about call centers. At call centers, one of the major performance metrics that they tend to use is call length. What you're interested in here is you're looking at the actual data. How long did it take on average for a particular worker to pick up the phone and then hang up the phone, basically deal with a call. Now, at the beginning, that sounds like a really good measure of performance, right? We want to do this quickly. We don't want to keep our customers waiting. But that metric doesn't really assess whether the call was resolved satisfactorily. We have no idea whether all that we're seeing is a bunch of workers trying to pick up the phone and get people off the phone as quickly as possible. Or are they actually being helpful? Are they actually resolving the issues that are being brought up? So you would need a little bit more context there and you would probably have to go out of your way to maybe get some external measures. Maybe you would want to have surveys at the end asking some customers how they actually felt about dealing with the customer service person at the call center. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And average average handling time, the, the call length in call centers is, is still a really commonly used metric because we can collect it consistently. We always yep. have the, the average length of a call. But if we supplement that with customer satisfaction, there's there's usually a correlation there. I mean, customers don't want to take a, a long time to have their issue resolved, but sometimes it requires you know time and attention and care to resolve an issue. So looking at those two data sources together can provide you a more accurate estimation of the performance of your call center in terms of serving your customers' needs. So I think that's really what we want to cover today. But you'll notice that there seems to be a bit of a trend 
A lot of what we tend to discuss in the podcast in general covers these issues. We're really interested in the idea of, of measuring things right, of making sure that we have the right people who we're collecting data from, and what are the kinds of inferences we can make for, from our analyses and our results. So what we're going to do is in the show notes, rather than send you to look at something specifically, we're actually going to link a few episodes from the past on which we touch on a couple of these issues. Maybe you can go back and look at some of the ones that seem most interesting to you, and you can hear us talking through these issues in context rather than more generally as we've done in this episode. But as an overall takeaway, we just want to reemphasize that when looking at data and, and if you want to become truly data literate, it's important to do the, the digging to understand the, the methodology and, and how the data were collected in the first place. This is a key piece of being able to accurately evaluate the, the quality of the data that, you, that you're digesting. So in the next part of this mini series, we're actually going to take a little bit of time away from after you've collected your data, after you've selected your instruments, to talk about the kinds of techniques you might use to analyze your data and get the results you want. So that's all we have for today. We hope that what we discussed today is, has been informative and, and potentially helpful the next time you read an article or are dealing with some kind of summary of data. Yeah. So, and of course, as always, we would love to hear from you. Make sure you send us your thoughts at mindyourworkpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or any suggestions or something that you'd like us to cover in the future. To find our show notes or to listen to more episodes, you can visit our website at mindyourwork.io. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. Uh, occasionally. Occasionally. Let me, give me, give me 30 seconds. I'm just going to close some windows and stuff. Okay. Sounds One good. sec. Okay. I think that's better. Yeah. Sounds better behind in the, in the background. Okay. So now we have some yeah. motivation to record accurately that before you melt, you know, before I melt, I got AC, man. I'm good. Okay. I'm good. <laughs>